Danny, think back all the way back to seven days ago (laughs) when you and I were frantically texting each other, trying to figure out why our wires out of SVB weren't clearing. Do you remember that wild time? That's actually crazy. In prepping for this episode, I didn't think about that, but that was that was wild. And you gave us the pro tip, yeah. by the way. Yeah, I gave you I gave you the pro tip, but it didn't even matter because it turns it, out right. they they didn't none of their wires from Thursday ended up going through. So we were all just frantically figuring out what's going to happen to our money. Yeah. Ugh. Can't believe we're on the other side of that. Yeah. Just a, a, a mere 7 days later and it's like almost like it never happened. Hello and welcome to Not Another Business Podcast, where we break down business news and cultural events according to rules we've entirely made up. I'm KJ Miller, ex-corporate consultant and current CEO and co-founder of Minted Cosmetics. And I'm Daniela Dektar-McCarthy, ex-corporate lawyer and current general counsel at Ness. And fun fact, KJ and I have been friends since our Harvard acapella days because we are that cool, everyone. Disclaimer to start the show, the views we express today are our own and not those of our companies. We are talking today about the absolute horror show that the startup community lived through this past weekend with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Oh, man. And what a horror show it was. (laughs) Literally the biggest bank failure since the 08 financial crisis, which we also Mm -hmm. lived through. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, let's hope this comes to an end soon. We got to stop living through financial crises out here. (laughs) And just bank failure. Yeah, bank failures. It was a very weird dovetailing for me of my current role at Ness, where we were very much affected by this because we had deposits at SVB, and my past life as a financial regulatory lawyer in a practice that specialized in bank failures and prudential requirements to prevent them. So... I just, I found myself in these out-of-body experiences (laughs) over the weekend, being like, what is happening? So we need to unpack it, if if for no other reason than just to provide therapy for me, we need to unpack it today. A hundred thousand percent. And I will just say at the outset, you know, we realize a lot has already been said about the collapse, even though it just happened like, you know, again, six, seven days ago. But we want to make sure that our perspective is additive, you know, that we're adding to the conversation, not just repeating what you've heard everywhere else. So, you know, we want to make sure that along with giving you the facts, we're also giving you our real lived experience throughout this uh, bank collapse and everything that happened therein and thereafter, because we think that's how we add a different perspective you know, to this historic time. So that's what you're going to get both during facts and during speculation. All right, I am forever plugging Minted Cosmetics. Minted, as you guys know, is short for pigmented, and we create everyday beauty for every hue. Today, I want to spotlight our concealer because our top-selling shade, this is actually insider information. Mm. Our top selling shade is going to be out of stock in the next three weeks. Yeah. It's called CEO. Yes, it was named for me. Yes, it is the shade I wear. <laughs> and and yes, it is about to stock out. I personally am about to buy like four more of them. Um, so the reason it's about to stock out is because people are in love with the formula. They're in love with the shade range. And you're going to be in love with it too if you give it a try. And code NABP gets you 20% off. So head over to mintedcosmetics.com and check it out today. All right, it's TikTok o'clock. TikTok o'clock. It really has been a while. Well, before we jump into our main topic, we want to wade through our social media comments and give our thoughts on your thoughts. KJ, what are the folks saying online? Well, as a reminder, last week we spoke about Peoplehood, the latest startup from the co-founders of SoulCycle that seeks to give folks, quote, a modern place to gather. So I posted the clip where we were talking about their guides, um, which, as you recall, are not therapists and, in fact, right. are described on their site as storytellers, super connectors, and DJs. Mm. So <laughs> I posted that clip and a user named Clearly There commented, Sounds like they're trying to monetize being a professional bullshit artist. 
What do you yeah. think about that? <laughs> I mean, this this is very much in line. We talked about Tom's view that this is just a grift. Um, and so I don't think this person is wrong. I think the question it raises for me is it might be the case that, that this is the monetization of a professional bullshit artist, but does it create value for some people <laughs> and at right. a lower price point than group therapy would? Because then maybe maybe it's okay. Again, I don't think this is for me, but I can see this business bringing some value to people at potentially a more affordable price than something like group therapy would. It comes with risks, but that's perhaps the trade-off of the price point. And so I am interested to see this business bear out, at least in New York. But clearly there, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah yeah i would i would agree with that i don't think you're i don't think you're wrong clearly there um and i will say a lot of the people who i would describe as super connectors and djs are right you know kind of bullshit um but that doesn't mean all of them are and frankly what i really think matters here is what is the actual training these people are going through and what are the actual parameters that this business is putting around these gathers because if you've got real parameters combined with real training then i could see super connectors and maybe even djs being good at this right but they don't actually talk a lot about that on their site right. i haven't heard a lot about either the training or the boundaries and parameters they're putting around these sessions and that is what makes me nervous and that is why i think a lot of us are like huh you know, raising our eyebrows. Right. <laughs> so. I was also thinking after the show about additional tensions that we didn't necessarily tease out, including if the whole point of peoplehood is to learn how to actively listen, why do I care if my guide is a storyteller? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, good uh, point. It doesn't really make sense doesn't really make sense yeah it's not it's not a quality you find a lot of therapists touting about themselves <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so not only are you not a therapist but also you're just really good at talking and i'm paying for something where the goal is to be an active listener like this you know okay they've got some things to work on again yeah. still would like to see how the business goes we'll keep an eye on it All right, folks, it's time for the main topic. And because it's such a big topic, we're splitting the facts into three sections. First, we're going to talk about Silicon Valley Bank and how it differs from other commercial banks. Then we'll dive into the collapse and how it unfolded. And finally, we'll give some facts about our experience during the whole fiasco. <laughs> so with all of that said, KJ, kick us off with SV SVB facts. Okay, so first and foremost, this was a bank founded in 1983, which actually makes it a relatively young bank when you think about the fact that it's the 16th largest bank mm -hmm. in America to have only been around since the early 80s, um, means that they've grown pretty rapidly in a fairly short amount of time. Um, and it was founded as a bank that primarily serves the innovation sector. So technology, venture capital, private equity, startups, the whole kind of innovation ecosystem that was always and has always been their focus. Um, and so, yeah, their, their, prim their primary customer base has always been startups um, and venture capital firms. And that means they're taking on different types of risk when it comes to their client base than a traditional bank. Uh, so, one of the reasons they've been able to grow their startup base, and by the way, um, by some estimates, over 50% of the startup ecosystem banks with SVB. And I, and I actually wouldn't want to just add a caveat to that. When people talk about 50% of the startup ecosystem banking with SVB, they're really talking about 50% of the venture-backed startup right. ecosystem banking with SVB. Lots of people start companies all over the place, restaurants, dry cleaning businesses, so on <laughs> and so forth, who are not banking with SVB. So we're really talking about venture-backed startups. And yes, a lot of them bank with SVB because they've always called themselves founder-focused, and they've always been friendlier to startups than traditional um, 
traditional consumer banks. So some examples of that are one, being willing to provide loans where other banks are not because these are new companies that don't have, you know, strong proven track records of of cash flow. Another example is being willing to extend higher credit limits on business cards where other companies would not be willing to, again, for that same reason. It's a startup without much um, track record. Um, And also from just a networking perspective, because they bank so much of the startup ecosystem, they can also play a role in introducing their clients to venture capital firms Mm -hmm. and helping them when they need additional equity funding. And in fact, once upon a time, Silicon Valley Bank actually had an arm dedicated to investing in startups, so doing venture capital. Um, I believe that arm folded when it became illegal for banks to do that. (laughs) But when it was still legal, that was also um, a role that they played. So very, very founder focused, very, very founder friendly. And as a result, you know, I know as soon as my head of finance started, you know, we we were banking with Chase prior to Silicon Valley. When she oh, came on, when she came on, one of the first things she said, because she's worked at other startups, other um, really successful startups, she said, you know, we really should think about moving to Silicon Valley Bank because <clears throat> they're just more founder focused, more founder friendly. We're going to be able to do more with them in terms of our credit, in terms of our debt. And so we did. Um, and and she was right. I will say we noticed a, a um, difference just in terms of like client relationship right off the bat. And this is not me speaking ill of Chase because mm-hmm. we went right on back to Chase. <laughs> <laughs> when SVB failed. OK, shout out to our banker Jasmine. But I will say there was a real a real difference because this is their bread and butter banking mm-hmm. and working with startups and maintaining those those startup relationships along the same lines i remember when we were looking at lines of credit from different lenders uh outside counsel had told me one of the things that svb is known for is like if you get into a pickle where you may trigger an event of default you can't quite pay back svb is very understanding and very Uh willing to work with you they're not going to right away you know pursue um, remedies under under your agreement that just like shut down the line and you know and exactly. say you're in breach like they'll work with you and that is important for startups who maybe don't always meet their targets <laughs> that they present <laughs> when they're getting that initial line of credit so absolutely yeah. and so because they 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 gained this reputation they saw a lot of growth a lot of really rapid growth and as of December of last year they had two hundred nine billion dollars. And assets, and like I said, they were the mm-hmm. 16th largest bank in the United States. Um, so, what's important to note here, though, is if you've got a lot of startups, more startups as your clientele than the average bank, then the way you do business is going to look a little bit different. So, the primary way I think most of us know this, but the primary way a bank makes money is by loaning out the money that they've got, the deposits that they've got, and then charging interest on those loans. And Silicon Valley Bank, their deposits grew by an an unprecedented amount between 2020 and 2021 because the VC market at that point was just so frothy. That's a word I don't love, but it is a word VCs like to use to (laughs) to mean that a lot of checks were being written. A lot of checks, a lot of big checks to a lot of startups. Those startups then put those checks in Silicon Valley Bank. So between 2020 and 2021, SVB saw its deposit base grow by a whole, whole lot. Now, if I'm Chase, again, going back to the Chase example, and I've got $200 billion in deposits from my business customers, because most of Silicon Valley Bank's customers were businesses. If Mm -hmm. I've got $200 billion in business customer deposits, I can put most of that money to work as loans back out to those same clients, right? Right. Because most of that money, since my guys are not mostly startups, most of that $200 billion is tied to revenue and, you know, business operations. So I can look at that revenue. I can say, hey, give me your P&L for the last five years, the last three years, however long, so that I can make a decision about how much money to loan you, right? So they can put a lot more of that money to work via the traditional, just sort of like loaning it out. But if I'm SVB and I've got $200 billion sitting there, but a lot more of it is from startups, 
I cannot put as much of it to work via loans as Chase can. I'm going to do more, right? Because I'm I'm the startup bank and I believe in startups and I'm founder focused. So I'm going to take on some risk and I'm going to write some loans that other banks wouldn't. But mm-hmm. I can't write the same percentage of my deposits in terms of loans because truly, I mean, these are startups, right? right. So there's only but so much risk I can take on. And that means when they were looking at their you know, deposit base in 2021, they couldn't responsibly write it as much of it off in terms of loans as they wanted to. And that means they had to put it to work some other way, right? Because what you can't do if you're a bank is just let your money sit there. It's not a money closet. It's a business. Right. <laughs> so so your, your money has to make you money. So what did they decide to do? They decided to invest 20, over $20 billion of that in um, government-backed bonds, long-term government-backed bonds, 20-year, 30-year, and at the going interest rate, which at the time was about 1.5%. So, you know, government-backed bonds are considered safe. You're going to get your money back. It's just Mm going to take you a long time to do it. And when they made that decision, presumably they thought, you know, our deposits will continue to come in at the same rate relatively. Um, Our business will continue to operate the way it's been operating. So it's okay if we've parked a good chunk of our cash in this safe investment uh, vehicle. So what does that mean in the weeks leading up to the collapse? Well, first of all, it means they've got less cash on hand because it's tied up in these illiquid government bonds. Two, and Danny's going to get into this a bit more, uh, but what I didn't mention is that that super frothy VC market became a lot less frothy in 2022. <laughs> Okay, a lot less frothy. So they have lowered incoming deposits. And then three, their client base is the riskiest subset of the economy being startups. So that's sort of our story leading up to the collapse. Danny, I'm going to turn it to you now to give us the facts about the collapse. Yeah, so there are a couple acute events in the days immediately leading up to SVB's closure that are important. First, on Wednesday, March 8th, sorry, I'm going to repeat that because that was gross. Hold on. <clears throat> okay. First, on Wednesday, March 8th, Silvergate Bank, which is a crypto-focused bank based in California, announced that it would cease operations and voluntarily liquidate its assets. Now, mm-hmm. Silvergate is a very different bank from SVB, um, only $11 billion in assets, Founded in 1988, but IPO'd much more recently in 2019. So a much smaller bank, but nonetheless, a bank that worked with crypto firms tend to be startups. So that failure started getting people thinking about the security of other banks, right? On the same day, potentially tied to it, to assure investors, SVB (laughs) issues a letter to shareholders saying they were taking, quote, strategic actions to strengthen their financial position. Specifically, the letter said that SVB sold all of its available for sale securities portfolio, so all those long-term treasuries, at a $1.8 billion loss. Mm. And that it was raising about $2 billion in capital via sale of you know, common and preferred equity. So these two things together, failure of, of a crypto-focused bank, a startup-focused bank, and SVB saying... We're great, but we just sold all of our securities at a $1.8 billion loss, got folks worried, right? Yes, um, yes. And their top-tier investors started saying, we've got to pull our funds. Portfolio companies, you have to pull your funds, which leads us to Thursday, March 9th. I will get into it when we talk about our experiences, but we received one of those emails that was like, pull your funds, right? So by yes. the end of March 9th, SVB depositors had attempted to withdraw $42 billion from SVB, which is nearly 25% of total deposits that the bank had by close of business, okay? Which means SVB could not meet their cash outlays at, by close of business on Thursday. And so the California Department of Financial Institutions, which is the you know state regulator in California, shut down the bank, and the FDIC took over as receiver, creating what's a bridge bank. Um, exactly. And I will so, just mm-hmm. note here uh, that we were a part of uh, that $42 billion. <laughs> Yes. 
Yes. Or attempted, we, yeah. Yeah, we were a part of the attempted $42 billion to flee Silicon Valley Bank. And I think you're going to get into this, but the fact that this man sent this letter and right. literally said, hey, look, don't worry, we're good. Like, everything's fine. We just sold off all of these assets at a loss. But other than that, <laughs> don't worry. I mean, it just feels like, sir, is it, did a PR person look at this? Like, who, who right. approved this letter? It was all very suspicious. Yeah, it... <sighs> Right. Okay. So I think that that might lead us to speculation, but I do just want to take a take a beat and say, how did we get to March eighth? Yes. And a lot of this has to do with the facts that you laid out, KJ. So first, for a number of reasons during COVID, interest rates being low among them, the VC world just boomed. Right. Three hundred seven billion dollars were invested in venture venture backed startups in twenty twenty one, and that's a figure that more than doubled total investment in venture backed startups in twenty twenty. And what does that mean for the bank to venture to the venture community and the startup community? SVB's assets tripled from 2019 to 2021, from 70 billion to around 209 billion, right? But things today don't look like they did during the height of COVID anymore. No, Interest they rates don't. are rising. Fund formation is slowing. VCs are tightening their checkbooks. So by the end of 2022, VC investments came in at about 200 billion as compared to 2021's 300 billion. And quarter over quarter, VC investments in Q4 of 2022 decreased by 14% as compared to Q3 2022. So 2022, you see a drop in in investments by 100 billion. And that was slowing over the course of 2022, right? So by the end of 2022, things are slow, right? Mm -hmm. Like the opposite of frothy, which means that for SVB, whose clients are primarily VCs and startups, their incoming deposits are decreasing. On the one hand, you don't have the incoming VC dollars you've been seeing over the last two years, so you have fewer deposit inflows. And on the other hand, because startups have less access to VC cash, they're going through their on-hand cash, right? Their yeah. cash burn is up. Yeah. And SVB expected this as they came into 2023, but things were even worse than their expectations. <laughs> so in that March 8th letter, um, SVB says, during our public investor call in January, we forecasted a continued challenging market and interest rate environment. We expected continued slow public markets, further declines in venture capital deployment, and a continued elevated cash burn in the first half of 2023, with modest declines in the second half. While VC deployment has tracked our expectations, client cash burn has remained elevated and increased further in February, resulting in lower deposits than forecasted. The related shift in our funding mix to more higher cost deposits and short-term borrowings, coupled with higher interest rates, continues to pressure net interest income and net interest margin. So basically, SVB is saying, we expected things to get bad. This is worse. Yeah. <laughs> it's and even I will, worse. I will just say on this point, this is one of the things I called out to my team when my team was sort of doing a debrief of the collapse. Because um, I found this sentence in his letter very telling, the, the mm -hmm. sentence about cash burn not slowing down at the rate that they expected, given that VCs were not funding at the same rates that they were, right? And one right. of the things that I called out to my team was, other startups have not been doing the same hard work that we did all throughout 2022. And that was mm. you know, a moment for me as CEO to be able to pat everyone on the back. But look, we've worked hard. We are now a profitable company. We've reduced our burn almost 60% year over year. And it's because we in 2022 saw the same macroeconomic events happening right. that they're seeing. Access to capital was harder. We've talked about this on the show. Access to capital from both an equity and a debt perspective became a lot harder. And so we had to tighten our belts. And so we did the hard work. Sounds like a lot of the portfolio companies, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the companies at SVB did not do that same work, but Minted right. did. So you That's know, a I really great point. Want to shout us out. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really great point. Um, okay, so we have these shitty macroeconomic circumstances. And then the question becomes, like, how does SVB react to this? Yeah. Right. So you mentioned earlier that SVB had a lot of cash tied up in long-term treasuries, 20, 30-year instruments that they purchased in 2021. 
because they needed a place to invest their cash. Well, now their cash stores are dwindling. They're looking at that portfolio and saying, we actually need the cash now, not in 20 years. But the problem, of course, is that interest rates have gone up, which means there are newer bonds with higher yields, making their low interest bonds worse worth less than when they purchased them. And so this is when the CEO made two decisions that ultimately just spooked clients and caused this run. Mm -hmm. One, he sold the entire bond portfolio at a loss, a near $2 billion loss. Two, (laughs) this is just, oh man. (laughs) He held a call with investors where he reported a loss, talked about the equity raise, right? Everything that was in that letter. But he told everyone to, quote, stay calm. And quote, don't panic. (laughs) And he also said that SVB, quote, had ample liquidity to support our clients with one exception. If everyone is telling each other an SVB is in trouble, that would be a challenge. Okay, so now everyone leaves this call and is like, oh, SVB's in trouble. We need to tell everyone (laughs) that, that there's a challenge, which is just... It's unfortunate, right? Because literally, we we all understand that at any bank, yes. if, if people decided there was a challenge and told everyone you have to pull your money, that would be a problem. No bank holds their deposits exactly at any meaningful percentage. So it was a statement that is like, of course, but when you're saying it, freaks people out. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, we're going to get into this during speculation, but I will say one, to reiterate your point, no bank can withstand a run on the bank. No right. bank just has all, like if right. everyone at any bank decided to pull all their money on the same day, that bank would collapse. Right. But when he had this call, it obviously sent people, you know, into a bit of a panic. I mean, I don't really know how else, to, how else people will react when you say don't panic, but also don't pull your money. I right. think people are going to be like, I am panicked and I'm going to pull my money. And that's, <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. I do think there's you know a bit to talk about how responsible venture capitalists are for that happening and, and spreading that panic. And we'll get into it during speculation. Right. But I also think you know people are rational. If someone says, hey, the only way this is going to end up bad is if you all pull your money, I'm going to hear, oh, that means I can't be the last person to pull my money. Right. Well, <laughs> so, is that irrationality or is that rationality? Is that isn't that the classic prisoner's dilemma? It's true that we learn about in econ classes. Anyway, again, we'll get into it. We'll get but, into okay, it. Okay. So the bank was put under receivership by Friday morning, and for the next two and a half days, there was a lot of hand wringing among startup owners, fund managers, other tech types about what was going to happen with all of their uninsured deposits. Mm-hmm. People probably know this by now if they've been paying attention to the news. No shade if you haven't, but. The FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, insures deposits in the in U.S. financial system up to two hundred fifty thousand per entity, right? Per corporate entity, anything above that is uninsured. Um, so, what normally happens during a bank failure is the FDIC comes in, all insured deposits go back to depositors, and then they look for a buyer to bail out the bank so that uninsured funds can also be covered or at least to some degree. This process can take days, weeks, months, um, and depositors on average can generally expect to receive 50% or more of their money back depending on the sale. Again, banks don't, especially of this size, don't fail every day. Um, So there's not a ton of data, but that's generally what happens. Okay, so this time, the very rich, very vocal leaders of the Silicon Valley community took to social media and every news station that would have them and argued that 100% of deposits had to be covered immediately or the entire banking system would implode. And indeed, everyone starts saying, well, well, First Republic is going to go down and, and PacWest is going to go down. Mm-hmm. And right, they start naming the other banks that they're about to pull their funds from, yeah. essentially, yeah. and say, well, you have to back deposits at SVB 100%. Otherwise, all these other banks are going to go down, too. So by Sunday afternoon, the Treasury, Federal Reserve, and FDIC put out a press release that said they were invoking a systemic risk exception that allowed them to cover 100% of all SVB SVB deposits, making those funds accessible the very next day on Monday. And indeed, I was shocked. They were indeed accessible the next day. Yep. Okay. So this brings us to our third section of the facts, which is our experience with all this. KJ, what was going on over Mm -hmm. in the world of Mented? 
when this shakeup was happening. Yeah. Oh, man. It still is wild to me that this was just a week ago. So my day started like any other. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Had my my coffee, did the things I needed to do. I think we recorded that morning. Yeah, we recorded our Peoplehood episode that morning. It's Thursday. And then I started getting emails from my investors. Um, And not just my investors, but also just investors that are part of various lists Mm -hmm. I'm on. And the subject line was just like SVB. But then, you know, which is very innocuous. But then the, the body was like, do you have money in SVB? If so, you should pull it or you should consider pulling it. Or <laughs> SVB just announced this news. We're getting nervous. I'm not telling you to pull your money, but I am telling you, you might want to diversify, you know, some variation of that. Either, you know, right. one in the spectrum, it was investors and people saying like, pull the money or, you know, maybe you don't need to pull all of it, but you might want to diversify some variation of that. That's what I started getting from my investors. At the same time, I started getting a lot of messages from founders from the founder lists that I'm on. Um, Two lists I participate in more than others um, because they're from, you know, they are founder lists from my investors. So they've put all Mm -hmm. their portfolio company founders into a big list. Um, And on those threads, founders were saying, particularly in both of those threads that I spend the most time on, are primarily black founders, okay? Mm. And, I, and I think this matters. In those threads, the messaging was very much our community, our black community of you know startups and startup founders, we cannot be the ones left holding the bag on this. So since we don't know what this is, we need to get our money out now. We don't have time to figure it out, to wait and see if it all clears up because we can't afford that. Other folks mm. might be able to afford it, but black founders cannot, and we we can't be the ones holding the bag. So we got to get our money out. That was very, it was very much the messaging, you know, with a couple people here and there saying like, oh, don't panic. But for the most part, everybody was like, uh-uh, get your money, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> <clears throat> so that's the messaging I'm getting. Now I'm like, all right, I agree. Like if there's going to be a bank run, you can't be the last one to run out the bank, right? Like mm-hmm. if there's going to be one, you got to be first. So I said, let's get our money. Now, this is something that's true about Minted. We are not cash rich, right? We are profitable, but relative, I'm sure, to many startups, we are cash poor. So in any given week, really any given month, most of the money that comes in is going out. And so what mm. I was worried about, much more than the amount of money I had in the bank, which, you know, fair amount of money was the amount of deposits I had coming into the bank because a lot of our retailers, um, retail partners pay us on Friday and those wires are initiated before Friday, right? Like Mm -hmm. Friday's when I get it. That's Mm -hmm. not when they initiate it. So that, (laughs) right. So that means there was money that I knew about that was on its way into SVB on Thursday Mm. that I couldn't do anything about. Right. Because they'd already sent it. So, so that, that was my real source of stress. My real source of stress, What, like, yes, I was worried about the money in the bank, but the money that I had coming to me was actually much more than the money I had in the bank. So right. I was very, just incredibly nervous about that. So we actually spent most of Thursday, yes, we, you know, did the wires out um, and then later found that they weren't processing. <laughs> right. Yes, we we did the wires out, but we spent most of that time on the phone and emailing back and forth and on chat support with our various retail partners, trying to get them to update the banking information, which a lot of these Mm. big guys, like the altos and targets of the world, this is not just flip a switch. It's not just like, oh, let me go in here, update the bank. A lot of them want signed letters from your new bank. They want to do tests, you know, to verify that that bank is the bank that you say it is. So they want to do penny tests or whatever it is. It's a multi-step, multi-day process. And what they also are not going to do is just be like, oh yeah, we'll just cancel this thing that's already started. Because again, that's another process for them. Someone's got to approve that. This isn't just, you know, me just calling up Jerry and be like, hey, Jerry, can you uh, (laughs) send those funds somewhere else? So that was my real source of stress on Thursday was trying to figure out how do we get all of these different retailers to put this money in a different account? Because if it all goes to SVB and SVB fails, then then I really am asked out, you know? So right. that, was, <laughs> that was my stress. That's all day Thursday. Then on Friday, we wake up, 
I'm still on my threads. I'm still, you know, text. I'm texting you, you know, because mm-hmm. we realized, okay, the, the wires actually did not process. And then the news comes, the bank has failed. And I, I forget, maybe it was sometime between like nine and 10, at least when I saw the news that the mm-hmm. bank was had gone under receivership. So now, first of all, I had to uh, Google receivership because I had not heard that. Because <laughs> I had not heard that term. So right. I did not know what it meant. So after I understood that it meant that essentially FDIC had taken over the, you know, insured deposits, and now they were going to start looking for a buyer for the rest of the bank, um, I was like, okay, that's interesting. What does that mean for my incoming deposits? That right. seemed to be the question nobody really knew the answer to. Like everyone was right. like, well, your insured deposits will be fine and you'll get access to them on Monday. But my question was, but what about my money that's in the balance, (laughs) that's hanging in thin air? And what if that is not insured, but it also didn't hit the bank, right? Because it puts me over the threshold, but also it didn't hit the bank. Right. So is it still my money? Like, and no one had a clear answer to that. So that was, again, my real source of stress. Like, I I got all this money hanging in the balance. What does that mean? No one had a clear answer for me. And so I would say I spent pretty much most of Saturday and Sunday texting with you on my various threads, just trying to get an answer to that question, as well as still trying to make sure that our retail accounts were updated. So it was it was very stressful because I couldn't find clear answers. I think a lot of people couldn't find clear answers to their questions. And that that was just, I, I thought this was going, I remember one of the things I texted you was, man, we're going to be hearing about the fallout from this for weeks, for months. Like, this is this is going to be so epic. And then, of course, on Sunday, the news came through that everything was, um, you know, guaranteed by the government. But that was my lived experience. What about you? Oh, yeah, we were in a slightly different position. We didn't have these like incoming wires that we were expecting, but we did. Ha- we had kind of the classic startup story here. Maybe a little bit better position because we did have another – we were a bit diversified. We do have a sponsor bank that we work with to fund our credit card operations. That All of that was fine. And actually, that's a huge relief. Like none of our operations for the product we put out were impacted by this because mm-hmm. that's just not where any of our money is. Um, but we do have a healthy – did have a healthy amount at SVB. Um, and so for me, the experience was really just – it felt like chaos yeah. <laughs> because – like you, I, you know, our CEO is on a bunch of list, listservs. Our head of finance and operations is on a bunch of listservs. I'm on a bunch of listservs, all different perspectives. And there's a lot of good information shared there. There was also a lot of misinformation shared there. So, yeah. for example, okay, yes, we all know that up to 250K deposits are insured. I spent way too much time. Way too many minutes or hours, I don't even know what it was of my life, trying to figure out whether I would just, whether we would just get that money or whether we needed to file a claim in order to get that money. And the reason why I was debating these things is because misinformation had spread from a venture capital firm that said, Mm -hmm. you need to file a claim by Monday. Yeah. By Monday, if you want, you, yes, the 250000 is yours, except if you want it, you need to file a claim by Monday, which is false. That's not how yeah. any receivership has worked. But but that's what it's that's what a venture capital firm put out. And then that there was a notion doc that was, you know, spread everywhere. OK. And then there was a question. Do you need to file a claim for your uninsured deposits? Same thing. Right. Like just people saying totally different things. I had sources that I really trusted that we're saying absolutely not. But, you know, I have my CEO saying, I think you need to. You know, I, I trust your judgment, but, you know, others are saying you need to. So then I'm in this position very similar to the the run itself, which is I don't think we need to do this, but I'm not going to be the one who doesn't get my funds. So I guess I'll file this claim, which, mind you, just let's say SVB, let's say 100% of deposits hadn't been backed, that would have mm-hmm. just slowed SVB, uh, the FDIC down in like processing claims because they would have had to like deal with all of these unnecessary claims, right? Mm-hmm. So it just mm-hmm. was like another own goal that the VC community, you know, had quote unquote scored. I don't know what the right terminology is there. Um, so that was one thing. Um, similarly, there were people who were, like alluding to, you know, already 50% of the assets have been sold. Wait, no, n- none of it's been sold. They're looking for a single buyer. Like there was just all this speculation mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. was spreading 
there was uncertainty about whether the wires that went out Thursday would be honored or not, right? Mm-hmm. The FDIC, people at the FDIC said two different things. One person said the bank closed on Friday morning, and so everything before Friday morning will be processed. One person said, nope, you know, the shutdown happened as a close of business of Thursday. When is close of business of Thursday, considering different time zones, right? Like, there was just chaos trying to figure out where are we going to get our money. At some yeah. point, someone said, well, there was a person putting up a notice at the SVB branch, and this that person said that, you know, all the wires would be honored. And in any event, they have a buyer. And I'm like, are we really listening to the person whose responsibility <laughs> is to post the paper notice on the SVB branch? Like, I don't think that person knows anything. Okay, I assure you that person does not have the good intel. So please do not put this in an email and spread it out to people. Like, what are we doing here? What are we doing? I I had not heard that. That is amazing. So the person they sent out to put up a flyer yes. had had intimate knowledge of the of the bailout, of who right. was buying it, of of the wire transfers. No, come on. That's why. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I just felt like the weekend was a lot of that, a lot of information being shared. And I don't want to knock all of it. There was a lot of good information that was shared, a lot of helpful information that was shared. But there mm-hmm. was also just a ton of noise. And so it was really about filtering the noise to figure out what is it that we can do? What is in our control right now? Yeah. And what is it that we need to do? How much of this is just wait and see, right? That was the weekend for me. Yeah. Um. Well, I will shout you out in this moment as well, because you are one of my trusted sources. Because one, you're a very rational person, whereas I like to, I like to panic, okay? Oh, that's I like funny. Just... I think of us, I think of is the, us as the opposite, but okay. Oh, that's so funny. No, I, I, I feel like generally speaking, I'm like, if, if there's a choice between being on level one or level 10, I'm on level 10, right? So, <laughs> so you know, it's easy for me to be like, oh my God, every, you know, everything's falling apart. So you were definitely one of my trusted sources and one of the reasons that I was continually texting you and FaceTiming you because I just wanted to hear you say like the smart rational things right (laughs) um and then there was one other person who I'll shout out his name is Eric he's on one of the other you know founder lists I spoke about um and I found that his information also was measured you know he Mm -hmm. was sharing only the things that he really felt were from sources he could really trust I remember at one point because we're all in a whatsapp group together he shared something from someone and then a few minutes later deleted it and said actually I don't actually trust this person enough to to Mm. to be sharing the information that they shared with me and I really respected that as well because I think you know in our community and by that I mean the startup community and particularly VC community people really want to be the right person and the, the smartest right. person in the room the loudest person in the room and the and the person who has you know the most information in the room people really value that so they they love to talk and they love to hear themselves talk um you know who am i to talk i'm literally on a podcast talking but you know you see what i'm saying <laughs> like, like this is this is a thing that our the people in our community value and so i think part of the reason there was so much misinformation is because people wanted to be the person saying yeah. the right thing um and i really respected that he was like you know what actually it's not worth it for me to have said this thing just so that I can say I've said it. Like, I want everything I share to be from a source I trust. I don't necessarily trust this source as much. I'm going to just go ahead and delete it. So you and he and then our, you know, our lawyers were the people that right. I, I trusted the most. I just, yeah, I'll, I'll shout you out for that. Because I think it was really important that, you know, we weren't all just fanning the flames of misinformation. Right. Um, I think we should get into speculation. I agree. We absolutely should. And I and I have laid out now, this might not be a helpful framework, but there were sort of three pieces, um, discussion topics that I thought would be helpful for us to sort of guide our speculation and then anything else we want to talk about also. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first topic is, you know, to what extent do we think this bank failure is indicative of a larger and more insidious problem within the startup and tech ecosystem? Because that is something that I think a lot of people have been talking about and speculating on, um, but it isn't actually something you and I have have spoken about throughout Mm -hmm. all of this. So I'm curious to get your thoughts there. The second, um, and very curious on your thoughts on this one, is what do we think this means for the broader economy and the brighter, broader financial system? Maybe now that it's all been guaranteed, it doesn't mean anything. Maybe it means a lot. I don't know. I think that's an important thing for us to discuss. And then the third thing being, what, if anything, are we doing differently at our companies in the wake of this 
collapse. So those are just three topics I thought we'd want to mm-hmm. hit on during speculation. And then, like I said, anything else that just comes up along the way. So I'll, I'll start with this first one. I'd love to get your thoughts. Like, is this bank failure, is SVB's collapse indicative of something broader and 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 more insidious happening within the startup and tech ecosystem? Like, should we really be worried about what's happening just in our startup community in general? I don't know if it's if I would call it an insidious problem, but I do think there are unique aspects of the startup community that made us particularly susceptible to becoming a panicked community mm-hmm. <laughs> that would then go out and and realize a bank run. Yeah. Um, which is we take on a lot and a lot of things that we don't know. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that you just have to wear so many hats. You don't necessarily have the expertise, which means you have to listen to others all the time. Yeah. Um, and exactly what you said, you have to decide who you trust, you have to decide who you don't trust. You know, you have to do that filtering. But there's a lot of listening to others. And when you have VCs who maybe they do understand, maybe they don't understand, but they're saying very forcefully a particular opinion, you are the stewards of their capital. It It is just a unique element of the startup community that I don't think exists in other industries and maybe doesn't always serve us that we are so reliant on, on others' opinions and that we mm-hmm. are the whole like – what is it? Move fast, break things, or break things move right. fast? What, right. right? Like, yeah. well, mm-hmm. we broke something. That's for goddamn sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we surely did. Yes, we we did move quickly. We right. moved forty two billion dollars in assets in twenty four hours, and we broke it. We broke right. it. Right, right. And so I don't know. I mean, it, I think is that a problem? I think it's it's not a. I don't know if it's a strength. You know. Right, right, right. You know, I. What I think, if I'm thinking about like what broader problems within the startup ecosystem does this reveal, I think it reveals a problem within the investor mm. and v- VC community. You know, I feel like most of the startups and founders I know handled this situation really as well as they could have been expected yeah. to, right? They got new information, they were told and encouraged by their investor partners to act they acted based on the available information that they had and along the way touched base with every single person they could Mm -hmm. to try and figure out the right move to make that's what almost every founder i know in this Mm -hmm. situation did i don't know that we could be expected to do much more than that right Mm -hmm. but investors and not every investor but we saw over the weekend and, and starting on that Thursday, a lot of investor and a lot of really, you know, like the Peter Thiels of the world, a lot of like big Bill Ackman's of the world, big, well-known um, VCs and investors, I think, take their very large megaphones mm-hmm. and and really incite this panic. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, they're supposed to be the smartest person in the room. Now, I personally have never called an investor the smartest person in the room, <laughs> and I never will. But they're supposed to be, right? They're supposed to be the people who do all the research about all the industries, keep their ears to the grounds, are always mm-hmm. talking to, you know, the experts in all the various fields. And and they're supposed to be the people who are guiding us through times like these. And instead, what I think we saw happen was first, a lot of them use their big platforms to incite this panic. And second, once it resulted exactly the way you would expect for something like that to result, right. then use their very big platforms to essentially, I mean, I don't know if this is the exact right word, but <laughs> some would say bully the government <laughs> into guaranteeing all of these deposits. Now, look, obviously, I benefited from the right. the, the bank, um, all the deposits being guaranteed. But what I thought would happen is what generally happens when a bank fails, which is the government would work to find a buyer. And yeah. that's how the bailout would p- proceed, because that is what typically happens, as you covered. And it's happened many, many times. The government right. knows how to do this. The FDIC knows how to do what they do. This is a process that, you know, is... And so, you know, some would say tried and true, but -hmm. investors, again, use their very big platforms to say that's not good enough for us. 
And to also then, like you said, start naming other banks that would fail, (laughs) which just caused even more panic. By the end of the day on Thursday, not only was I getting emails about SVB, I was getting emails from my investors asking me about First Republic Bank. And I was like, First Republic Bank? Are we talking about First Republic? Right. Right. Like, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about SVB. Like, uh, who's next? You know, so it just, again, I just... That to me is the issue. And I've I've said before and I'll say again, I'm not talking about my investors, but I am talking about <laughs> I am talking about some of y'all. I think investors have such a huge responsibility, and I don't know that they are always the best stewards of that responsibility. And I think this really shines a lot, this situation really shines a light on that. And I think the question is, what are investors going to do differently? Because I think a lot of founders did exactly what we were supposed to do in this situation. That's a really interesting viewpoint. I did receive an email, uh, I want to say Thursday evening, where someone who is GC at a venture fund, um, basically in all caps said, where is the leadership? Why aren't we calming our portfolio companies down? Why aren't we telling people to just chill, <laughs> right? Other, like there's no other way this ends well if we're doing anything other than that. And you raise a really good point, particularly the people who at the outset started saying, pull your money, they probably have enough money and their portfolio companies probably have enough money to, if they said the opposite, if they got together and said, let's not pull, <laughs> then the bank would be fine. Right. Right? Right. Um. I mean, I guess, again, like this, this is a prisoner's dilemma situation, right? If you can't build that trust, then you do feel like you can't be the person holding the bag, right? And so if you can't build that trust with other investors to say like, all right, let's the balance sheet otherwise looks okay. Like, yes, they took this loss, but they're doing what they need to do and raising this equity. You know, we we don't want to run, so let's let's just band together and keep our money there and make sure our portfolio companies do the same. Like, if you can't trust that you can forge that kind of cooperation, maybe it is still the rational thing that to get on their megaphone. Or maybe they didn't have to get on their megaphone. I don't know. You know, <laughs> yeah. it is. I think you raise a really good point that. There, this maybe could have gone differently, and the only way in which it could have gotten differently is if VC com- VCs and investors had reacted, had reacted differently. Yeah. But then maybe you know maybe this is the CEO's fault. Of SVP, <laughs> well, yeah, right. I think yeah. There's 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 there is blame to share. The CEO right. of SVB. I mean, I've seen takes. Not only is the way he you know announced this information about the the loss. Um, and then the co- comments thereafter, not only was all of that, you know, just dumb, but I, I've seen a lot of people argue, finance people who know more about this than me, <clears throat> um, that there's a lot he could have been doing over the last 12 months mm. that he wasn't doing in order to shore up his, his, his cash um, that he wasn't doing. Mm-hmm. And I, now I don't know if that's true or not. I have not looked at their balance sheet. I, I don't plan to. I'm not a finance <laughs> person. But of course, a lot of the blame should sit with the CEO. If Minted goes under, the blame should sit with me, right? So right. I'm going to say about 90% of the blame probably sits with that man. But to the <laughs> extent to the extent that we're looking at what what can we say about our community and our ecosystem right. that could right. be changed, I do think a lot of VCs should be looking in the mirror and saying, did I help or did I hurt in this mm. scenario? And and as long as they're at least having that conversation, then I'm fairly happy. I'm not saying, you know, everyone, every VC needs to com- immediately change their behavior. But like, are you even talking about it? Are you even thinking about like, if next week, First Republic experiences, you know, even more of a, a, a plummet on their stock and sell something at a loss, are we going to do literally the exact same thing we just did? Right. Or are we going to do it a little differently? You know, I at least want them to be thinking about that and asking those questions. Yeah, it's interesting. On Monday, I felt like the day was very oddly business as usual. <laughs> um, you know, there were some aftermath steps that yeah. we had to work through, but it did feel oddly business as usual. And I think perhaps it's because what you're saying, like that reflection, I didn't necessarily engage in it. And it was unsettling to not engage in it. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. And so I, I wonder if others did or 
plan to or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. How yeah. could we avoid this? Yeah. It, it's I agree. The fact that Monday did feel I mean, I was still dealing with all my moving all my retailer. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Monies and dollars. Um, but other than that, in a lot of ways, it did feel it did feel completely normal. Um, and that, yeah, it was a little unsettling, which actually gets to another one of our topics for speculation, which is, you know, what, if anything, are we doing differently now that this has happened? I mean, to address the very acute problem, like we are taking liquidity risk a little bit more seriously, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, and, and, thinking about diversification of institutions a little bit more seriously, right? Um, we had that a little bit. Um, actually, I would say we we did consider it more than other companies did, but I think we're considering it even more. Yeah. We're also moving to institutions that are more established, which like as a society, do we want that? I don't know, but that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we're just more cautious, you know, and in the, we didn't really talk about this, but one of the big, one of the big concerns that a lot of companies faced was just the ability to make payroll by March 14th, 15th, whenever payroll yeah. normally happens. And so when we were not sure how much of the insured deposits would be, or sorry, how much of the uninsured deposits would be covered, we started just like looking at what, what costs can we cut? What can we keep from going out? You know, like what can we do to make sure that we can make payroll? And so that's an exercise that we are continuing. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't talk about it, but that was another one of our wires that was caught up. So, or not wires, right. but ACH debits. So we use JustWorks. JustWorks initiated their debit before the bank was announced as being closed. Right. So that was another wire that we could we could see, but we didn't know where it was going to go. And, <laughs> Same. Yeah. So are we getting paid? Are we not getting paid? That was a big question. Um, I, I will say, yeah, like you, we are being more cautious. We went back to Chase, as I already mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um. It, because Chase is considered, um, I think the term is systemically important. I think yeah, they're they're a global a GSIB, a globally a globally systemic important bank, right? Yeah, um, mm -hmm. which essentially means the government's not going to let them fail. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so. <clears throat> um, I you know we did that. We are keeping you know more than one bank account open again uh, to de-risk sort of our, our mm -hmm. cash. Um, those are the big changes. But, you know, something you said gets me to the, the third topic, which is what does this mean for the broader economy? And what you what you said was, is it a good thing that we're moving to these larger, more established banks? And I, I struggle with that. I will say mm -hmm. when we moved to SVB, they were a good partner. Mm -hmm. And they and they and they've been a good partner to founders and to startups for a long time. Now they have not actually fully closed, right? Like now, no. It's and in fact, the CEO is saying to encouraging people to bring their money back. They're actually exactly. like, hundred percent of deposits are insured. Like this is I the mean, best place you can put your money. A hundred percent. And and in yeah. some ways, now I don't know. Are hundred percent of deposits going to be insured forever? No, it's or? unclear. It's very yeah, unclear. It's very yeah. unclear. Um, but you know. Even if people, you know, get back to a place where they trust Silicon Valley Bank more, it's going to take a long time. And I and I think part of what the broader economy, particularly the broader startup economy, suffers from is if we're all going back to the bigger banks and the bigger banks don't aren't as founder friendly as Silicon Valley Bank once was, do, I think we all pay that price. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, so I do worry about that. But then again... They're saying they're open for business. Now, how many people are putting all their money back in there? I don't know. But they're saying they're open for business. I've been very confused by all of that communication. I mean, I do think my hunch is that the CEO is trying to get, you know, money customers back so that they continue can continue to be like attractive to potential buyers. Because again, this is still a bridge bank. Yeah. Like a, bridge it's a bridge bank, bank is supposed to just be the bridge between the failed bank and whatever happens in the future state often an acquisition or a liquidation, selling of the assets. It's not necessarily supposed to be a new bank that just operates in perpetuity as this right. new bank. So it is all the communicate, but but the communication from the new CEO sounds as if that could be an option. So it is very confusing. Um, I think for the broader economy, 
I agree with your point that, yeah, I don't know that this is a great outcome for startups because Chase is not going to take the same approach that SVB did, for better or worse. On the other hand, um, you'll hear Elizabeth Warren, for example, say that one of the reasons why this happened is because of a rollback of regulations that um, occurred in 2018, regulations mm-hmm. that were promulgated under Dodd-Frank. Um Chase and other GSIBs that have more than $250 billion in assets are subject to those stringent rules still. Yeah. Um, yeah. The rollback occurred for banks between $50 billion in assets and $250 billion in assets. SVB having $209 billion was one of those banks. So you could say, all right, if more funds are now in banks that are subject to that more those more stringent rules, like that is better for the financial mm-hmm. system and for the economy. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, Elizabeth Warren would say, let's just bring the rules back for for, <laughs> for right. the other banks. So, right. I, yeah, I don't I don't know that like deeper concentration is a good thing. Um, and we'll we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to see. So then let's uh, what let's get to our verdict. We've we've talked about this probably more than any other topic we've ever talked about on our show. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your final verdict, Danny? My feeling overall is that this was just so unfortunate. You know, like it was a big own goal. We all just succumbed to panic. Um, I can't blame ourselves too much because like that's what everyone rationally predicts will happen. But it's just it's it's unfortunate. I think we lost a good partner in SVB and caused ourselves a big headache. Um and that's 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 what I've got to say. Hopefully, we learn something from it. That like the the hopefully we learn some something from it. And to the extent that a lot of the information sharing was helpful, and I do think some of it was helpful. I hope we can cite we can um, sift through the helpful stuff and the not helpful stuff. How about you? Yeah, I agree with all of that. You know, I think my final verdict is grateful to have survived. What at one point look <laughs> at one point really looked very scary. Um, Grateful that we're on the other side of it. Um, I do mourn a little bit the loss of SVB, you know, Mm -hmm. as much as I'll mourn any bank. Um, (laughs) You know, I think think they were good partners in a lot of way to a lot of startups and a lot of founders. Um, And yeah, like you, I'm just hoping the entire community took some lessons from this, not just founders, Mm -hmm. but really and especially... VCs, um, and that they act with real care um, surrounding the the platforms and the, and the megaphones that they have, should we find ourselves in a similar situation in the future. Okay, folks, it's time for Judge and Jury. We're moving on to a lighter topic. If you're <laughs> new here, this is the segment where we dive into recent news and ask whether there was a display of good or bad judgment. This week, we're going back to the Oscars, and we are talking about Angela Bassett. She's been catching some slack because when her name was not called as the winner for Best Supporting Actress, she looked visibly sad and upset and did not clap. Um Now, some people are speaking out and saying she's a sore loser and she should have been more gracious about losing to Jamie Lee Curtis. KJ, what do you think? Yeah. First of all, I do not think this was bad judgment. (laughs) Experiencing emotions. Um, Her emotion in that moment was that she was sad. And so the fact that she looked sad is just called being human. And it it is... so frustrating to me that women, and in particular Black women, are not allowed to be sad, to express emotions, to feel upset, and then show that we are upset. She didn't get up and stomp. She didn't throw a tantrum. She didn't, you know, toss tomatoes at Jamie Lee Curtis on stage. She just looked sad about not winning an award that a lot of people would argue she should have won, mm-hmm. including me. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think it was bad judgment. I think this idea that anyone should have to always keep on a game face, no matter what they're feeling or experiencing, I think that idea is toxic to all of us. We should all be able to feel what we feel and express what we feel without it um, 
with, without garnering a bunch of like negative attention. You know, I, I just think the, the day when we are not allowed to emote is a sad day for all of us. So I think good judgment on her part. What do you think? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if this is cheating. I kind of want to pass. I just feel like it's a bizarre moment to expect anyone to exercise any judgment other than just their very natural Mm, emotional mm -hmm. reactions. You know, Um, I, obviously there is this norm that we kind of expect for all the losers to like clap and be happy for the winner. That's not natural. You know, maybe we Mm -hmm. expect actors to do it best, (laughs) right? (laughs) To like draw on their best skills at that time. But it's not, a natural reaction. Um, and so I'm not going to say it was good judgment that she didn't. I just, or bad judgment that she didn't. It just was a moment where she was being human. Honestly, like this whole practice of panning to the losers is bizarre. It is <laughs> like, bizarre. Why do we do that? It's bizarre. It's just like the person who came up with that was the shadiest, yeah. shadiest human. Yeah. You know, I, that is thinking about this segment, I just thought we should just stop doing that. You know, like we should just Mm -hmm. stop doing that. Look, focus on the winner and that person's joy and let the loser lose in peace without the judgment and without the compilation of 50 biggest losers of all time, which is what (laughs) I was seeing. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Like, no real reason to pan to everyone. I understand showing, you know, as 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 it's being announced, like, cutting to each of the five people and we can see if they're excited or what they're doing or whatever. But as soon as the winner is announced, like just pan to that person, you know, because they're having a moment and they deserve to have their moment. And like you said, people deserve to also be able to feel their feelings. So yeah, I, I, we got to get rid of that. And also, no, I'll probably never say Angela Bassett is out here (laughs) exhibiting bad judgment. (laughs) Well, never say never. You, you got close with Beyonce and I never would have thought that's true. I got close, but I didn't actually say it. Right, that's close. fair. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, that is it for this week. As always, we hope you're loving the show. And if you are, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. And be sure to follow us on social. I'm Danny D. MC on TikTok. And KJ is I am KJ Miller. <laughs>